0: Ruth chapter 4. Hey, when, when you know it's a fairy tale, it always starts with, and how does it end? They lived happily ever after. You know, and me, now this is me. Somebody said, the end. Yeah, that's right. Me, when my kids would say, hey, do you want to read a story to me? They'd always grab the same old story, sit in my lap, and then I would read. And so I thought, I'm going to be clever. I'm going to get this done quickly. i got other things to do. I would read, once upon a time, They lived happily ever after, the end. And my kids caught on after once. They caught on and they were like, Daddy, there's a whole lot more in the middle that you forgot. Well, when we're doing the book of Ruth, it's not a fairy tale, but it's a story where they're going to live happily ever after. We're going to come to that portion this week, next week, and it's a beautiful story. It's a love story. And it's one like those typical stories that has, you know, all kinds of challenges and events and going through. And we can jump to the end and say, great, they'll end up, you know, finally getting everything resolved. But there's a whole lot in the middle that's really important, especially what we're going to talk about this morning as we approach communion. There's an illustration in this book that is absolutely phenomenal. If you're unfamiliar with the story, let me just recap it, okay? Instead of just say at the beginning and the end, there's nothing. Here's the middle part and how it starts. They, uh, what happens is there is a Jewish family. They're living in the land of Israel. The land is, is undergoing famine because it's in the day of Judges and the people are walking away from the Lord. And this man, by the name of Elimelech, he decides he's going to take his family out of this region and move to a land that was forbidden, Moab, and for the Jews to live in. And so he doesn't follow the word of the Lord. He follows his own desires, go to Moab, ends up living there for a number of years. His two boys, Malon and Kilian, they end up growing up. Up and he the man the father dies, and the boys marry two Moke girls and then shortly thereafter they die, so now you have mom who is a widow. You have the two daughter-in-laws who are widows, and it's just a tragic beginning of the story. Mom-in-law tells the two daughters, go home to your own mothers and your own gods. Go back to your families. I have nothing to give you. Even if I were to have more children, they, they, by the time they grew up, they couldn't take care of you. And so she's encouraging Orpah to go home and Ruth to go home back to their families. Orpah does. Ruth insists, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to convert to Judaism. Your God shall be my God. And where you go. I will go. As the Lord lives, I promise I'm going to stick by you, mom-in-law, and I'm going to help you. And so she goes back to Israel with mom-in-law. They go back to the Bethlehem region where they had left, where mom had been years before. And when they come back, mom is all discouraged. She just says to her friends who say, you know, Naomi, it's good to see you. She says, don't call me Naomi. My name is Mara, bitter, because God has dealt with me. I've lost my husband, lost my sons, and I have nothing left, nothing Ruth is standing next to her, so it makes Ruth feel bad, I'm sure. But Ruth then goes into the fields and begins to glean like widows were allowed to do. They could go along the edge of the field. The the people who followed the Lord were told to leave a little bit at the edges so the widows and poor could come and harvest their own grain. And so Ruth starts doing that. And one day, it just happens to be, she goes to the field of a man by the name of Boaz, who she didn't know was a relative of her mom-in-law her, former, her, her uh, former husband. And she goes to his field. He just happens to come on that very day when she's there and he and her get acquainted. And over the next three months or so during harvest season, they have lunch together and they basically spend some time together. And then at the end of the, uh, the period of harvest time, it's time that things are going to wrap up. Mom-in-law says to the daughter, the daughter-in-law, she says, hey listen, he's a relative and according to the Old Testament, he would be one who could provide for us. And he's really one that is supposed to marry you because of your widowhood. And so she says, here's what you do. You go tonight and you go to his threshing floor where he's working and you lay down at his feet. You uncover his feet and you just lay there. And when he, is, you know, when he wakes up because his feet are cold, you know, then he's going to tell you what to do. And basically she does that. We read in, in Ruth chapter 3, she's, it says that he wakes up, verse 9, he says, Who are you? And she says, I'm Ruth, your handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for you are my near kinsman. In modern language, it would be, will you marry me? Very bluntly. And he responds, and he says... Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for you have showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, and as much as you have followed not after the young man, whether poor or rich, but basically you came and proposed to me. Sounds very positive. He's game to do it. And he says, Now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to you all that you are requiring or requesting. For all the city of my people know that you are a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am your near kinsman, Howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I, tarry this night and it shall be in the morning that I will perform unto thee the part of the kinsman." Let him do the kinsman part. But if he will not do the part of the kinsman, then I will do the part of a kinsman to thee. As the Lord lives, lie down unto the morning. She lays down, and etc. cetera, et cetera. Verse, four, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Whoa, hey, you turn aside, sit down here. I've got something to talk to you about. And so Boaz performs this duty that he says is the duty of a kinsman. This is one of those little parts that leads to the ending of Happily Ever After, where chapter 4 ends up that Ruth and Naomi, I'm sorry, Boaz and Ruth get married. Naomi, they have a child. Naomi's a grandma, and she's all thrilled and excited and happily ever after. There's that little bit of, in the middle, something really, really important. Now, there's lots of lessons we could get. We've already talked about some of them. We talked about how not to make major life decisions in the very first message about how they decided to leave the land. We talked about how to handle grief and tragedy when we had the three widows, the three ways of how they handled their problems. We talked about the idea that God is sovereign in our lives. Therefore, as sovereign, we need to trust him. How he orchestrated all these events and people meeting people and coming at their very moments. And it's just the sovereignty of the hand of God is amazing throughout this whole story. As well, we looked last week at character traits about different people who get together when Ruth and Boaz were developing this friendship that leads to a marriage. What kind of traits did they see in each other that were traits that they would want to have as a partner? So we talked about that. But the question I have this morning is, is there any way that this story points to Jesus Christ? In any way, shape, or form, is Jesus pictured in this sense? Now, in theology, we know that there are types that Jesus declares, that did picture me. The type of the, the serpent in the, on the post. The type of Jonah in the well. This one he never says is a type. And yet there are some parallels here that you say, hey, this may have been what Jesus was referring to. When in Luke 24, he's walking on the road and it says he went through the Old Testament and showed how the Old Testament, that it prophesied, it predicted, it pictured Jesus Christ as he's walking with the two on the road to Emmaus. And so I look and pause and say, wait a minute, what is in the middle of this story that helps us to see something about Jesus Christ. It's the kinsman redeemer. It's this little bit of of detail that we don't stop in our story, and nobody explained it to us as we read through the passage. And yet little details in history are huge. They're, here, let me see if I can illustrate. Little detail in history. The United States, back in the 1840s, they got the whole entire southwest America. Got California and all the different states there, which expanded our country during that time of expansionism. There's a detail behind that story that most people don't know about. The detail goes back to Indiana, that a few years before that, a fellow by the name of Harry Harry Shoemaker, he was working in his field, and it dawned on today's election day. And I promised I was going to vote for such and such a candidate. And so he ran down to the polling place so he could cast his ballot. But it was right at the moment that they were closing the doors. He insisted that he would be able to vote. And they said, fine, we'll let you, since you came all this distance, to vote. And so he vote. His vote was a disputed ballot, by the way, the way he marked it. So they kept it separate from the other ballots. And as they counted up the ballots, they found out that there was a tie for this one fella, it happened to be the fellow that Shoemaker voted for. And so when they were saying, well, how do we handle this tie? The judge said, we will count this one last ballot. That happened to be Shoemaker's ballot. And so this fellow by the name of Madison Marsh became the state representative. So he goes to the capital of the state of Indiana, and he's doing his duties. Back in those days, we didn't vote for U.S. Senators. Back in those days, the Assembly voted for the U.S. Senator. So Indiana had to choose who was going to go to the U.S. Senate on their behalf. And they voted. But there were several ties that took place until Marsh switched his one vote, and as a result, Ed Hannigan became the U.S. Senator. One vote. One vote. One vote affected Marsh getting office. One vote, Marsh's vote, affected Hannigan getting office. Fast forward a few years beyond that. The United States is having a dispute with Mexico. And so the United States Senate is debating, should we go to war or not? They are in a deadlock tie for the vote. And then they were going to take a second ballot. Hannigan wasn't present for the first ballot, So when he did show up for the second vote on whether they go to war, he voted, go to war. And by one vote, the United States declared war, went to war with Mexico, won the war, and they got the reparations from the war was California, Arizona, New Mexico. All of them because of one vote, one vote, one vote, and all of a sudden they become part of the union. Those one votes had a tremendous play in American history. So when you talk about little events, little singular things, there's one character in this story who plays a phenomenal role because he is called the kinsman redeemer. It's something out of history that most of us aren't familiar with. I've mentioned it before, but let me repeat the idea. The Goel. And I, every time we read this morning, this text, where it said kinsman, it's the word Goel. And I paused and highlighted each one of those times. The Goel is a Jewish practice or custom coming out of the Old Testament. This person is one who was supposed to redeem or rescue his relatives who were in trouble. And so what happened is there was three different possibilities of him practicing rescuing his relatives as a kinsman redeemer, as the goel. One could be this. You were so poor that you couldn't keep things up. You sold the family farm. Well, in Jewish culture, you keep family farms generation after generation. This is the land that God gave. They were divided to specific families by lot. They were to keep their inheritance. So what happens is if you sold the family farm and you couldn't get it back, one of your near relatives, your goel, they could go and they could get back the family farm. They could redeem it and bring it back into the family lineage. There was another possibility, according to the Old Testament, that if you were so poor, you sold yourself into slavery so that you could keep on feeding your kids. Well, your Goel, your near kinsman, he was supposed to come and buy you so that you wouldn't become property of some foreigner or sold out of the land. He was to rescue you from this auction block. He was to be the one that was supposed to get you back and set you free And pay your debts. There was another possibility of the goel, the kinsman redeemer. The other possibility is that strange custom that was in the Old Testament. That if one of my older brothers had married and they died before they had children. Then myself or one of my other brothers were to marry the widow. And and whatever child she has was to be my brother's heir. And would carry on his name, and so the goel would be the one who would marry the, the widow and provide for her, take care of her. So you put this all together and go, wait a minute, this goel is really important to the story. This kinsman redeemer is pivotal, pivotal to the happy, happily ever after's ending. And in the story, the goel is Boaz. In the New Testament, our goel very much like Boaz, is Jesus Christ. There are so many parallels in this story that just help us to just see behind the story a picture, a parallel, an illustration of Jesus. Let, let me show you what I mean by that. There are the requirements that we're going to talk about, and then there's the results, what, what he produced. So let's talk about the requirements. The requirements to be a goel in the Old Testament is you had to be a blood relative. You had to be related to them. Boaz makes it clear. He says, I am a near kinsman. I'm not the nearest, but I am a near kinsman. He's made that clear where we already read this passage that, that Naomi says he's a near relative. Ruth says, you are my near relative. And he says, it's true, I'm a near relative. In this sense, does Jesus fit... The category of being our Goel, the one who can rescue us. Yes. The New Testament highlights it time and time again that Jesus and us are physically related. You see, it goes like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then remember the next phrase? It says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He's emphasizing a thought that Jesus was people. He's related to Adam's race, you and I. There is a physical tie. He says, made in the, f- in the fullness of time was come. He was made of a woman, emphasizing his humanity, that he is like us, that he is related to us. That Christmas passage that we talk about, that we even sing, for unto us a child is born human. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And it defines it describes he is the one who is wonderful, counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father in the flesh, the prince of peace. Again, Jesus is related to us. Who being in the form of God, that is in the essence of God, thought it not, he took upon himself the form, the essence of a servant. He goes on and says, and was made in fashion like us. In other words, he was... A real people. And it goes on, he says, being found in the fashion, the appearance. And again, stressing, he was human. He was fashioned. He was he was visibly a real person. And that's really important because there was people saying Jesus never came in the flesh in the New Testament era. They were saying he was just a spirit. And Paul is writing, he says, No, he was real people, he was real body, he was a man who became obedient unto death. So this concept of Jesus being related to us is huge. For as much as the children of our, as we children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, so that through death he might destroy him that had the power over death, that is the devil. Jesus had to become a person related to us if he was going to rescue us as a goel. There is another parallel. The Goel is somebody who is in no need of a redeemer himself. In other words, he doesn't need somebody to rescue him. He himself isn't in debt. Well, that was Boaz. Boaz wasn't one who, who was in destitute situation. Boaz had the wealth. Boaz had the ability. He was able to self-sustain, take care of himself, as well as when he goes and says, I will provide and take care and and rescue Naomi and Ruth. He had the wherewithal to do it. So the, the, the kinsman redeemer had to be one who was not himself, okay, in need of being redeemed. So we ask this question, did Jesus need a redeemer? Was Jesus as a people in the same pickle that we are? The pickle I'm talking about is this, for all have sinned and come short of The standard of God. The wages of sin is... Okay, so did Jesus have sin? Okay, we know that. We know that the Word of God says repeatedly, the Word of God talks about we have a high priest who became for us, okay, that high priest who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made much higher than the heavens, who needs not to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins... In other words, Jesus was sinless. He didn't need somebody to pray for his sins to be forgiven. He didn't need to ever say, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. He never did. He prayed, Father, forgive them. Okay? In in Hebrews 4, For we have not, or in other words, we do have a high priest, which was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In other words, he was tempted in all points like we are tempted. Yet he was without sin. Okay? We have in the Corinthians for he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He could not be our savior unless he was sinless, perfect. And Jesus was that, who did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth. He had to also be willing to redeem. And that was the the proposition Ruth says, you know, will you marry me? What if Boaz had said no? He was willing. Boaz was so willing in the morning, he says, I I will go and take care of this right away in the morning, first thing. And we already read in chapter 1, first thing in the morning, he went and he approached the other relative and said, hey, you know, one of us has got to rescue these people, you or me. I want to do it. I am willing to do it. Is Jesus, okay, as we look at this, is Jesus willing to rescue us from our sinful indebtedness. Oh, absolutely. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. I laid down my life for the sheep. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I voluntarily am going to go to the cross and die for you, for me. And so we read in Scripture that we know that he lo- we love him because he first loved us. Jesus is willing. He's a blood relative. He is able to take care of this. Okay, did, did Boaz have the ability to be able to rescue, redeem, take care of Ruth and Naomi? Absolutely. He was able to pay what was required. We read that in chapter, it's in verse, uh, chapter 4, excuse me. Okay, I have verse, uh, chapter 3. Chapter 4, verse 9. You are witnesses, he says, after he goes and meets with the city elders. You are witnesses that I have bought, I have paid for, I have redeemed all that was Elimelech's. I have purchased Ruth to be my wife. So he was not only willing, he was able to do it. So our question comes this. Is Jesus able to pay the price for our rescue? Is he able to do it? Well, we saw that he was sinless, but does he have enough beyond that? Does he have enough righteousness? Does he have enough holiness to cover our sins? Does he have what it takes? We read in the New Testament, we know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, though he was rich, he, for our sakes, became poor. For what reason? So that through his poverty we might become rich. He had it. He had the ability. He became sin for us in that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Righteousness doesn't come by our good works. Forgiveness doesn't come by giving money, knowing, knowing the books of the Bible, going to church, singing songs. Righteousness doesn't come to us by what we do. Righteousness is found in Him. Jesus is the only one who has the righteousness, enough of it, to share with us to get forgiveness. We read elsewhere, but the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. He has the ability to rescue us. Almost all things are by the law, purified by the blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In whom we have redemption through His blood. It says, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. He was willing, he was able to provide what was needed so that by his precious blood, as a lamb without blemish, we are able to have forgiveness. It doesn't come by baptism It doesn't come by church membership. It doesn't come by being an American or being whatever your family name or being in a Bible church, whatever denomination. Salvation comes by Jesus Christ. He is able and willing to save all that are lost, including you and me. Oh, thank God he was willing. Thank God he was able. But there's another thought here. Somebody might be able... But do they actually make the payment? Do they actually follow through? Have you ever run into somebody who says, Oh, I'm willing to do this, and I have the ability to do this, but they don't follow through? Well, here, Boaz, did he follow through? I already shared the verses on the last point. That he was willing, he was able, and he did make the payment. He actually carried through with it. That he paid for Ruth and Naomi. What about Jesus? Did Jesus carry through with the actual payment? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what we, when we come into this season of next spring and we talk about Easter, we all know what happened. That on the cross, Jesus is there. And those of you who know the Bible, you know that one of those most important seven statements that he calls out, he cries out and he says, It is. And what's that mean? I've paid the debt. I've paid it in full. It is fully covered. And after he said, It is finished, it says he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. He actually did die for us. He actually did suffer our hell for us. When on the cross he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus paid it. Jesus paid it. Jesus paid it all. So we come and we say, hey, this is absolutely amazing. This is, this, this, is, this is done because he loved us. Oh, we know the story that Boaz, he acted as he did because he loved Ruth. But here's the story for you and me. Jesus did this for his bride. All who would become believers. That could include you. It does include everyone here who has called upon Christ at some point in their life and asked Him to forgive him, them of all their sins and to become their personal Savior. And there needs to be one moment in your life that you do that. That you have crawled to Jesus. Sincerely before Him you have said, I am sorry, I repent of my sins. Please forgive me of all my sins and give me the gift of eternal life. Be my Savior. Has it ever happened? Well, if it did, you probably have the same results that Naomi and Ruth have. Similar results because what happened for them was all of a sudden, because Boaz made the payment and redeemed them, they were released from their poverty, no longer poor. No longer were they in bondage to this idea of living from hand to hand, from week to week, from gleaning a field to gleaning a field, paycheck to paycheck, which was devastating They were now redeemed from that. They were rescued from that. And all their debts would have been covered as well as not the past, but as well as anything in the future. That Boaz would have covered their needs, would have provided for everything for them as their redeemer. You have this idea that they recovered everything they had lost. They get back family name. They get back family property. They get back family inheritance, a lineage that was lost with Elimelech and Caelan and, and, and uh, Killian and Malon's death. They get back now a succession in their family, generation after generation. You know, when you called upon Christ, all your sins were covered. When you called upon Christ to be your Savior, you were no longer to be under bondage to sin. To Satan, you were freed. You were all of a sudden became a child of God. And he promised to take care of you and provide for you and work all things for his glory. That which was lost to the human race by Adam and Eve when they were expelled out of the garden, that's been restored to you. Because we know that absent from the body, we will be present with the Lord. As well, we know this. There was great changes that took place. In Naomi's life, just, just picture her and her alone. Here's Naomi before she gets the kinsman redeemer coming to her rescue. She's a woman who has gone her own way. Her and her husband disobeyed the Lord by moving out. She's totally destitute. She doesn't have anybody to take care of her other than Ruth, no male child as an heir. She's, she says that, that she lost the property that God had given to them. And she comes back and she says, I am Mara. I am bitter. I am destitute. But once Boaz comes to the rescue, what happens to her? The property that her family had, it's restored. She feels blessed of God. She now has this home. She's in the home of a prince, a Jewish nobleman. She becomes useful. She is rejoicing at the end of the story. Oh, this woman has drastically changed. And we could take the time, if we wanted to, and hear about the drastic change in so many lives in this room. And it's not because of us. It's because of Jesus Christ that we become new creatures. Can I add to this? You become elevated to new heights. Ruth, who is down in the in the in the gutter, so to speak, she is elevated. I said, "I'll to the home of a, a Jewish prince." Take Ruth. Not I was talking about Naomi. Let me talk about Ruth for a moment. Ruth, pagan background. She's a widow. Ruth, she's destitute. She's got to work the fields herself. She's you know she's got to be you know relying upon other people's property. When she is redeemed, rescued by Boaz, when she says, I take you, Boaz, to be my redeemer. And he says, I take you to be that which I redempt. And they, and they get married. She becomes the bride of the kinsman redeemer. She is elevated to a place of prominent position. She is one of the historical figures that ends up in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She is one of those women that we look back to and we call heroic characters of the Scripture. Why? Because she became the relative of that kinsman, the bride of the kinsman redeemer. You do realize that when you got born again, you became the bride of Jesus Christ. In His mind, you are that important to Him. He will take care. You are princes and princesses in the mind of God. You are a holy nation, You are God's chosen to be in heaven. What an elevated spot to be in. God has graced you with the riches of heaven that are going to be yours. Some of it already, you're experiencing it. This is what the Redeemer does for you. This is how he works. And it's no fairy tale. If you want to live happily ever after, you have to say yes to Jesus, who is not willing that you should perish, He's come to rescue you. He's come to redeem you. He offers you the free gift of eternal life. If you say, yes, I take you. Forgive me of my sins. I take you as my Savior. Give me eternal life. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what he offers you. Now, if you're sitting here this morning or you're listening and you say, I I don't know if I've ever done that. I don't recall a moment or I don't have that same confidence. We're going to give you that opportunity in these next minutes. Our staff is going to go over to that door. And they're going to be there willing and waiting for you to just move across the auditorium. Go over there and say, can somebody show me from the Bible how how and what I need to do? And so you are welcome to consider that. And then while I speak for a few more moments, then feel free to just walk over there. And they'll take you aside privately and show you from the Bible. What you need to do. But let me remind you what the scripture says. Behold, this is the day of salvation. God wants you to get saved today. To become his child. To become his bride. Go and talk to one of those individuals, please. I want to I wrap this up with this thought. One other thought, though. Another result. The redeemed individuals. Ruth, Naomi. They come from not knowing what to do to the point that they are rejoicing. And they call out, blessed be the Lord who has. That's Naomi. That's what she says in chapter 4. Blessed be the name of the Lord who has. And then she starts listing. Part of redemption story is that we are to be rejoicing. We are to be praising. We are to give God glory and thanksgiving for what he has done and will do. That's why he has established that which we call communion. Communion is literally, the Eucharisto, is literally the idea of giving praise, giving thanks. So we're going to come this morning, and right now, and we're going to start giving thanks by what we sing. And then we're going to celebrate by taking these elements. And in, the, in this whole process, saying, thank you for shedding your blood. Thank you for giving your life. And give him glory as we reflect, as we remind ourselves of Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, what he did for each and every one of us who is born again.